0: Hello, Matt. Hello, David. It's great to be with you here on our 50th anniversary.
1: Yes, um, it's lovely to be here too, celebrating 50 years. <laughs> which is what an anniversary means—50 years. That's right. But we're actually celebrating 50 a 50th episode anniversary
0: right and in fact we've only actually released 46 prior episodes
1: yeah the first four episodes we numbered them but we never released them
0: right it was you know it's just kind of a way to pad our stats so we could get to this important 50th golden anniversary a little bit quicker
1: that's right and um, we've got cake that you got from uh alonzo's patisserie or something like that giovanni's
0: Yeah, it's it's like a little old... Alfonso? Counter style. I mean, they had this lovely old sign. You know, the place has probably been there since like 1959. And uh, the woman inside was perhaps born inside the pastiteria. Yeah. And uh, we came in and we're looking for cake. Mmm. And... um,
1: We got a vanilla slice and a, a small chocolate mud cake.
0: Yeah the vanilla slice has like a little bit of a golden tinge i was you know thinking about something with kind of golden gold flakes you know they, they traditionally and on anniversaries gifts are given and um, the gifts tend to be like material resources things that uh, are increasingly precious over time so you know I, i'm i'm not sure exactly what the the early year anniversaries are composed of but it's usually things like tin or aluminum brass string but then it gets up to like
1: <laughs> silver and gold and diamond and emerald and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I think we've actually missed our emerald anniversary because we weren't taking it seriously enough, Matt. We're here to redouble our efforts. I'm
1: ready. I'm ready to take start taking this seriously. That's right.
0: This is a very serious production. We've yeah. got um,
1: we've got Shakespeare. We've got social theory. We've got bird shit. Double faults. Uh, labor theory, <laughs> theories on unpaid domestic and volunteer labor. It is um, it is a serious Australian Open 2023
0: episode. Yes, and uh, you know to make sure that our seriousness is really um, crystal clear mm. um, through this gold tinted lens of an anniversary episode, um, you know, we're going to start by talking about curses and how serious curses can be. So it might be seen as uh, somewhat auspicious for us to be discussing something as serious as curses on our 50th anniversary episode. What does that portend for our own fate? Curses have come to the forefront of our consciousness this week as Netflix has decided to um, both film and, and damn several professional tour-level tennis players by capturing their likenesses on film. As it stands right now, no Netflix-featured tennis star has made it past the fourth round of the Australian Open. They have all fallen by the wayside
1: That's right, David. The Netflix series Breakpoint has done these sort of biographical pieces on players like Berrettini and Tom Lanovich and Andrzej and Nick Kyrgios, and every single one of them has either been injured before the tournament's even begun, or they've fallen um, short of expectations in one of the early rounds. And so people are calling it the Netflix Curse.
0: You know, I found myself wondering if we should perhaps, you know, perform a curse. You know, I, I feel like that's something that we could we could do. It's, it's just a, it's something exciting to think about, you know, who who or what would we would we curse? You know, and th- that sort of just led us into thinking about curses more generally. Like, what do curses sound like? <laughs> um, what, you know, what is the actual tangible physical impact of a curse? You know, is it, is it something mystical or metaphysical like what's what's going on there? Why did the Netflix curse manifest in this way? Do you have any theories on that Matt?
1: Well, I'm all for theorizing on the spiritual and you know, I like to think that perhaps invoking spirits, you know, can can have influence on, that there may be something beyond this physical world But I do think on a purely psychological level you know, it makes sense that um, if you think about something happening, you know, if you you say something is going to happen, um, they talk about the commentator's curse. Like, you know, he's looking like a really he's hitting his shots and he's doing amazing um, play at the moment, and then the next thing, the player loses or whatever, and right. they call it the. Commenters. He hasn't
0: double faulted in a set and a half. Right, classic. And then immediately.
1: He'll double fault. But, you know, I think you just have to look at sort of maybe um, Shakespeare as like one of the examples of, you know, curses. Like uh, Shakespeare took curses very seriously and the supernatural very seriously. And in, in Macbeth, when Macbeth um, receives the news that he's going to be the king from the witches, you know, it sets this cascading um, chain of events into motion because he he's trying to make the prophecy come true and that ends up cursing him i think it's cuz he didn't stay in the present you know and allow things to happen and instead he thought about what might be or what should be and that's why i think that's why i think the netflix show is a bit of a curse because it takes a player out of being present and instead brings them into um, maybe a vanity project or wondering about how they're going to be perceived in this series or You know, because it's it's such a prominent TV show that these already famous tennis players are now thinking about how you know maybe being being superstars, Mm. and if they win a Grand Slam, you know, and that gets um, that it becomes a good story on the Netflix show, you know.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's like uh, the I think the Netflix show is also you know it's trying to any kind of biographical. Uh, piece on an athlete like this I think one of the objectives that the the um, filmmakers have is to expose the inner hopes and dreams you know to really like dig into the psyches of the players and like get them to reveal things about themselves that um, perhaps people didn't wouldn't otherwise know you know we've talked we talked last time I think about how the Netflix series probably is going to just be inherently less interesting to people who are already fans of the sport because we tend to think we know most of these stories, you know, like the, the amount that's being revealed about the characters and the psychologies is not, uh, you know, it's not as significant for people who are as tuned in. And for us as observers, we also feel like and, and core fans like we feel like it's just not as interesting to look at the sport without that context. But we've already discovered it in many cases. But to bring it back to the players, uh, I think they are often, you know, like there's a certain life that they live as tour athletes traveling around the world, spending all their time with their teams, their coaches, their partners in different cities, uh, playing tournaments in a variety of conditions. The, The kind of rigors and demands of tour life are very pressing and i think but i think also if you're really committed to that life and you're a top player you just necessarily have to stay in the moment and we can observe this with the top players where the you know their their capacity to perform under incredible stress is perhaps what separates the great players from the merely good ones and right i i think that it's a really interesting angle to think about you know players extending themselves outside of that normal box and how it might just subtly take their attention away from the thing that they're actually there to do
1: mm. i think a grand slam tournament already you know uh there's so many interview opportunities and sponsorship opportunities and and commitments within that having to having to attend interviews and attend promo shoots and all that kind of stuff, so it is a heightened time, and um I just think perhaps with the Netflix players, they've had to endure even more stress around this kind of stuff than mm. usual. so so that's perhaps why it it is a curse. Like you saw in the episode with Tom Garnovich and Berettini, the camera is actually right in the room, you know, mm. right in the hotel room, they're going to bed, they're watching TV together thinking about you know a camera crew being and they're playing matches the next day mm. thinking about a camera crew being in your room when you're trying to rest um
0: so do you think it is possible then to curse somebody without that kind of physical proximity or, or ability to actually like intrude into the into the lives or at least somehow kind of touch on them like you know in it, uh in macbeth correct me if i'm wrong because i haven't read it and you know at least 50 years um in Macbeth the witch is it the witches who are cursing Macbeth like uh
1: yeah I don't the, know if they the around witches. the
0: cauldron or is yeah
1: they, he encounters them he has an encounter with them
0: Were they just prophesying
1: yeah they make three they make this pre three prophecies the first of which has already come true for Macbeth
0: somebody cursing us? Uh, <laughs> it's yes. some kind of disturbing sound. In a, in a rush to curse others, we are opening ourselves up to some kind of karmic payback.
1: It, it could just be, if you, it could be the rain.
0: Well, um, we just took a little break to enjoy one of our Golden anniversary cakes.
1: Oh man, that vanilla slice is very good.
0: That was pretty delicious. We had a vanilla slice and a conversation about original sin. Hmm. But uh, we'll save those details for another time. Okay, so what does a curse sound like?
1: Mm, it sounds like a crow. Oh. Cool. <laughs> like. It's nighttime, and it's just there's not much sound going on. And I think, like, yeah, like, a, it sounds like an animal making a sound, I think. Yeah, something organic, but a bit scary.
0: You don't think it sounds like the Netflix uh, boot sound or perhaps a <laughs> USB stick being disconnected from a Windows PC?
1: Oh, yeah, it could sound like that, too.
0: I guess, you know, we, this, is, this is the cyber slam we've decided. Uh, the Australian Open is the most digital... Of all the slams, so so you know, I was wondering if maybe a curse was more like a hack in a in a cyber world.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think um, the ghost in the machine. The, there can be some crossover there between that's the spiritual realm and the technological realm. Mm. And if that were to happen, um, it might play out with the line call system at the AO.
0: Mm, yeah, I was thinking that you might have an interest in cursing some of the machines,
1: so that we can get real line judges back. Right. Yeah, because they do make some mistakes. They make some stupid mistakes. Like it's already called a let, and then it calls a fault. Um, no, well, that would make sense actually.
0: Right. No, there was a there was a let. I remember. I think we were at a match, and there yeah. was a let cord on a serve. And the ball was then returned, you know, not in play, but the returning player hits the ball yeah. and it just misses the line, the baseline. And then the back on the server side, on the server side, and the robot says out.
1: Yeah. What's why, that would it about? Do it, why is it going to call something on the side? That's just served. It? Yeah.
0: Right. A human would never make that mistake. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure about that, but it's possible. it's, it's possible.
1: But you can imagine, you know, if the, Line judge system got cursed, it would start like spewing out faults at inopportune moments, and maybe it could start um, faulting all the courts at the same time. Fault, 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 fault! <laughs> yeah,
0: we were discussing this, and I, that there's an idea here that I really like, even though I am actually a proponent of. Um, robot line judges i I think they could probably take it a little a step further and introduce animatronic robots you know they they could find decommissioned disney animatronics like abraham lincoln or you know somebody from the pirates of the caribbean and like install them on the court to kind of create an an illusion of life um
1: right because otherwise it's just this disembodied voice Who's calling the fault? You don't see anybody, there's no one there.
0: Yeah, and there's something, one thing that I do think is missing from the new system is that when a ball is in, right, like, and you have a line judge, the line judge will put their hands, they keep their hands down to indicate yeah. that the ball is in so a player can clearly see that the, the ball was hit correctly. Yeah. But nowadays, because of the fact that we, the only calls being made, there's no physical presence around the in-out calls. The only The only call being made is out. Yeah. Um, Or fault. Yeah. So if a ball is out, a robot, you know, robotically issues the out call. But if the crowd is buzzing and the players like in the moment, they don't always necessarily hear the call. And if a ball has been hit very close to the line, they're not sure if the ball was in or not either. So there's sometimes a little bit of confusion now that was not present before. Um, and I do think there's something there that was lost that perhaps could be you know, brought back with, with more physical robots. But um, to circle back on, um, on curses and hacks, I mm. do think if you really wanted to make a statement, if you really wanted to curse the robotic line judges, mm. clearly you could imagine a scenario where the Hawkeye Live... Make some egregious error, you know, uh, like a, a ball that was obviously in is called out and it mm. disrupts an important match mm. and they have to make some on-the-fly adjustment, decide not to use Hawkeye. How do they even deal with that? What's the backup plan? But it seems to me that if you wanted to effectively hack Hawkeye live, if you wanted to curse the machine you would want to do something that was more elaborately staged, that introduced more subtle errors over time. Yes. So that it wouldn't just be detected and then some programmer in a cave somewhere decides, like, well, I'm going to go fix the bug. Like, I know exactly where the issue is. You'd want something where, you know, just subtle errors, you know, sort of like the one we were just talking about, where an out call was made when it wasn't necessary.
1: A few of those. And then maybe you accidentally interrupt a point mid-flow with an erroneous it doesn't have anything to do with the action on on the court at the time Mm. and they have to replay the point but then it starts to cascade and then there's more and more interruptions until you can't hear yourself think because (laughs) the machine is just going off and then they have to cancel the whole system and bring out um, whatever, kind, whatever umpires are in the clubhouse have to come out and um, be line judges for the day.
0: Right. We, we like the idea of seeing Mo Liani out there like drafted into emergency line judge duty.
1: Right, because if that happened at the Australian Open, the only umpires available will be like veteran chair umpires. they are not going to be any junior line judges because they were never employed or thought about for this tournament.
0: Yeah, I wonder what would actually happen if Hawkeye Live went down. It, I've never seen that happen.
1: Well, the chair is trained to call, to look at all lines. Right, so
0: they can just make all the calls for all the lines. From the chair, they, they but it would, wouldn't be position. very... I feel like there's been a thing also where the, you know, it's suggested that the athletes themselves will call in and out, and, you know, obviously that there, there's a certain amount of trust in, inherent in that.
1: Yeah. Um...
0: I don't think an athlete like on a full run can necessarily see the ball very well, and they often really want to see what they want to see.
1: Well, what are some of the curses I would make? Um, I'd like to see the umpire curse both players, (laughs) and uh, and see what would happen. Um, And I think he, he or she or they, could curse by saying a plague. On both your houses, mm. to quote Macrucio from Remy and Juliet.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a that would, that would result in an interesting match. I don't know exactly how how far the curse would go. We were we were wondering actually if uh, if we had cursed somebody. Like I I'm not clear on this. Like we've you know we've certainly expressed some interest in Sasha Zverev having a bad go of things at the end of matches right and then he he suffered this horrible injury and um yeah you know i felt i felt even a little bad about it i mean he's a human being even if i think he's not a good one not the best one
1: all right presence presence in the sense of being there being there geographically present Mm. um spatially present in the in the place where the thing is happening but also being present of the mind Mm. in terms of your focus is on your senses and what's occurring right now, rather than your thoughts and feelings being drawn into the past or into the future. Uh, And um, I think, as a spectator, being at the tennis match, you know, is a great way to feel presence. Because there is so much going on, there's an energy, a charge, Um, all your senses are excited. So you do get to to feel, in the moment, um, much more than you do watching on television.
0: Yeah, something uh, that uh, you suggested this week that I, I found really compelling is the notion that spectators at a live match can really influence the play. And... I don't know. Perhaps that's something that people take for granted a little bit. You know, like a a raucous home crowd will get behind their person and give them a little bit of a lift and perhaps irritate the opponent. You know, this sort of thing is more commonly recognized. at something like Davis Cup where there is expected to be a kind of, you know, parochial, nationalistic vibe. Mm. Um, But I didn't really think about it in terms of like the individual presence, like just being there and saying something once uh leading a chant you know crying out at the right moment Hmm. Um, you know we've certainly witnessed uh situations where fans obnoxiously will call out like during play you know uh or cheer a double fault and you know like do something that like kind of gets under the skin of somebody and it's a little bit you know at least according to the etiquette of tennis a little bit uncalled for
1: yeah and you see players react you know you see the umpire especially this tournament actually Mohamed Layani was uh, saying please show respect to both players don't call out um, don't cheer on a double fault right and that's um, you know that's not a hard and fast rule that's just that's more of a uh, etiquette thing right um, but you do influence I think a a player's mood, concentration, confidence, by supporting them at the right moment, mm. or showing respect at the right moment, mm. allowing them to concentrate more. I think Karen Kachanov was saying when he beat um, Tiafoe that he, uh, you know, he really disliked. He's fine with the cheering, but the, the applauding his double faults—it's not showing him respect yeah
0: there's something interesting here too i mean like i think often this topic gets raised you know contrasting tennis with other professional sports and how pretty much every other professional sport doesn't have an etiquette about silence and you know like certain expected behaviors around like when you can move around or when you can speak or when it's okay to cheer so it feels very like old-fashioned and alien to you know especially to a younger generation and and you know i certainly know when i take um you know when i when i take friends to see live tennis for the first time things that i assume to just be obviously known or not necessarily like the idea that you can only enter or exit a stadium during a changeover and i i also one thing i observed on the grounds this year was um the the people the um, I don't know what you call them, like the the ushers. The ushers, uh, ushers, making more of a point to explain that like you can only go in at a changeover. You know, it's important to go straight to your seat. If you're not at your seat when they call time, just take the first available. Don't try to get there, even though it's going to take you another forty-five seconds, and then Molayani is going to publicly shame you. <laughs> um, so I have, yeah, I do feel like maybe there's been a little bit more of a conscious effort to reinforce some of the. Unwritten rules of behavior around a uh, live tennis event.
1: Yeah, but and at the same time, I think it's push and pull because you have players like Kyrie saying, now "Bring it on!" Just right. you know, in the NBA, you know, you're, you're trying to um, influence a player when they're shooting a free throw, for example, right. and that would be considered mean spirited to um, being calling out when a player is serving in tennis. Yeah, there's some of the commentators even saying, "Let's bring tennis out of the dark ages. Let's right. be able to cheer and jeer and shout out any moment in a tennis match, and let the let the players have to deal with it." But I do think that um, that would lose something interesting that tennis has, like a history and an etiquette and a you know a social code that is about respect and it's developed over time because people have found it necessary or interesting or, you know, good practice. Um it's kind of fun that, you know, to learn a social code and have to abide by it.
0: Yeah, for me it's also a little I think it's less about etiquette for the sake of etiquette and more about the aesthetic experience of taking in a live tennis match. Okay. Or just tennis in general and how it feels to observe tennis. Like Mm. to me it feels really starkly noticeably different from other sports. And one of the major reasons for that is the attention, the quiet. Like for me, the feeling of going into Noble Wombat Arena and having the place be so silent that you can hear the heavy breathing of one of the players in between like after uh, after a point we were watching Donna Vekic and Linda Frivirtova play mm. and the crowd was wonderfully into it in that in that sense you know nobody was making a sound and Vekic in particular would, would be pummeling the ball and you'd hear her recovery you'd hear mm. air going into and out of her body and mm. like that kind of like closeness to me that's mm. a, there's a sort of intimacy that, mm. that you get in tennis from live tennis in particular and I just like that it is different from the other sports. I wouldn't want it... To me, it's less interesting when it becomes kind of raucous and fratty and, you know... Just a free-for-all. Yeah, it just just changes the experience of it. And, you know, uh, you could accuse me of snobbery because I'm attached to this very, like, you know, like old-fashioned proper, like, behavioral thing about Mm. tennis. But really, it is about the... You know, I, for me, it's very joyful to to take in a game that is so defined by quiet and attention and focus. Like I just, I love that about the sport, and I, I hope that it doesn't change. So I, I'm appreciative of the fact that they're trying to reinforce some of these things.
1: Of course, you're not going to go to jail if you call out in between right. a point or, um, or you cheer a double fault. Uh, but I think it's interesting that these social codes rely on people. People themselves, ordinary people reinforcing them through our behavior. And in that sense, I think it really brings the spectator in as a full participant in the experience Mm. because it's up to us to wait to cheer, you know, to cheer in the right spot. If we want to yell out to say something to a player, you know, and say, like, come on, Roberto, or come on, Tommy, um, you need to pick your moment. You need to pick it. It needs to be after a point. But it needs to be not too close to the time when they start their service motion. So you've got to be focused on the game and choosing your moment when you're going to um, intervene Mm. as a spectator.
0: Yeah, I think it's also like perhaps just the nature of having a social code that is, you know, it's not strict, it's not hard and fast. It requires that the participants in the social environment are kind of holding one another to that standard and reinforcing it. I think, unfortunately, you end up in these situations where people don't know, like, what they're supposed to be doing. And, you know, perhaps they call out or perhaps they act in a way they shouldn't. And then they get like a, you know, these dirty looks and the shushes. And, you know, I mean, it it does tend to, you know, there is a pushback against the the kind of undesirable behavior from the uh, tennis purists perspective but yeah just uh it's something that i think if we care about the sport continuing to maintain that that feeling that it does need to be advocated for you know when people suggest that it, it become more like basketball and just turn into a free-for-all i uh, i think that would fundamentally change the sport
1: yeah 100 percent agree and to to um bring a bit of social theory into the into the uh, mix here pierre Bourdieu, the french um social theorist um, talks about social fields and and habitus Um, like habitus is something you feel in your body um, uh, because of your socialisation in the world and so you you are influenced to act a certain way um, not through any hard and fast rules but just because of the way sort of things are done and um, I think you can Tennis is a good example of a sort of a social field and a, and a habitus that gets curated and reinforced, but also changes over time. Mm. But just not, it can't change with the stroke of a pen because it's it's something that's embodied by all of us.
0: Mm. What if we refused to follow the rules of fashion? This question was semi-famously posed by Jeremy Enoch on the "Sunny Day Real Estate track, Guitar and Video Games. Most of us tend to reject this proposition. Expressing ourselves within the range of acceptable dress and behavioral norms tends to be the well-traveled path. Professional touring tennis players are certainly no exception here. Visit the 2023 Australian Open and you will have witnessed scores of players wearing slight variations on the same exact Nike kit. A range of striated, amorphous shapes arranged in a pattern reminiscent of a topographical map or the cut interior of a large gemstone. Players in the Nike camp could choose outfits within a range from subtle, monotone expressions of this concept all the way up to the full bodysuit, five alarm fire that was Francis TFO's outfit during his three matches prior to defeat. What might be seen as stylistically bold or garish starts to become dull and repetitive as player after player after player trots out the same kit. All these players following the rules of fashion dictated to them by their corporate masters. Yelena Ostapenko, on the other hand, has answered this question in the affirmative. Observing Ostapenko in action, one does not get the sense that rules or norms, dress, comportment, or play style are in any way something she concerns herself with. I recently had the strange privilege of attending the fourth round match between Ostapenko and young American superstar Coco Goff. Coco is one of the United States' great hopes, a delightful player, and seemingly excellent human being. Someone who plays the right way, says the right things, and has been in a state of perpetual ascent since rocketing onto the scene at age 15, winning three matches in the Wimbledon main draw. Ostapenko, on the other hand, is actually more accomplished. She is a former French Open champion. But her career arc ever since has resembled something more like an electrocardiogram. Arriving in my third row seat in the corner of Noble Wombat Arena, shouting distance from Kogokoff's team and family, I immediately noticed the brief cry of a baby. Who brings a fucking baby to a tennis match, I wondered under my breath? Well, the answer wasn't far off. A stylish and clearly rich Asian woman sat across from me, up one row, baby detected, bouncing in her arms. This baby was impressively tucking into a bag of honey soy chicken potato chips, an Australian delicacy, while mama was downing glass after glass of white wine. Clearly, Both mother and child would need to put something strong in their bellies for what was to come. Several games into the match, Ostapenko was receiving serve, positioned on the end of the court nearest to where I sat. As Coco started to go into her service motion, Ostapenko would start vigorously dancing in place, squeaking her tennis shoes blatantly, unnecessarily. This was quite obviously hindrance, simple strategy designed to get under her opponent's skin. Good sportspersonship? Why bother? Says Astapenko. Coco Goff, to her credit, complained to the ump about what was obviously a distraction technique and unfair to her. But the ump blew her off. Obviously a player must be free to move prior to receiving serve, right? Well, the distraction worked. Goff never seemed particularly locked in. On serve during this match. There were poor ball tosses and plenty of faults to go around. Her first serve percentage was a by definition middling 50% for the match, giving Yelena plenty of opportunities to punish the second serve of Coco Goff. Punishing is actually quite a good word for Yelena Ostapenko's game, not to mention her overall demeanor and spirit. I sometimes call her playstyle casino tennis, because she gambles like somebody trying to pay off her bookie. With every opportunity, she will look to crush a winner, whether it's wise or not. Playing within margin is not a concept found anywhere in her playbook. As if she would have a playbook. When she's on, she makes her opponents look helpless, even foolish. But when she's not, well, it's not a pretty scene. Fans of graceful, dynamic, all-court play are well-advised to find another match. Ostapenko's court dress matches her give-no-fucks attitude. At last year's French, Elena raised eyebrows well beyond their natural resting point with her frilly, unflattering pink dress with its seemingly haphazard bands and patterns of black and white. While less blatantly horrible, her AO outfit was similarly rough on the eyes. The red top marked by comically oversized blue collars and a too-high waistband. The blue flounce of her skirt billowed audaciously, like a gown someone might have unwisely worn to prom in the 1950s. Her fashion, it seems to me, is more like anti-fashion. And she has the game to match. Unpleasant, uncompromising punishing in both output and aesthetics. At some point in the second set, I noticed that I had not actually noticed the bouncing baby across from me too often. I was impressed. Look, if you're going to bring a baby to a goddamn tennis match, it had better be a pretty chill baby, right? At one changeover, mama stood her boy or girl up in front of her on the stairwell, able to stand but perhaps not yet walk the baby teetered there, proceeding to grab the bag of chips, deftly extracting two fine morsels and inserting them into their mouth, looking around with the curiosity of a toddler. The mother, a cell phone camera ready in one hand would snap her fingers at her child to try and get it to look at the camera. I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, this baby is going to fall down. It's going to crack its skull on the stairs. Somebody needs to do something. But all of that was just a projection of my own anxieties. The baby was just fine. Happy, satiated, and, well, mostly quiet. During one Ostapenko service game, suddenly the babe became restless. Elena went to serve, and the baby cried out in horror. I thought, perhaps this is some kind of karmic justice for... Ostapenko's unsporting squeaks on return. Or perhaps the baby too had the sense that it was watching something unusually unpleasant. I found myself wondering, is Yelena Ostapenko the punk rock of the WTA tour? Against the grain, repetitive, jarring, unpleasant tennis snobs like me. Perhaps I just don't understand it, like, Somebody who was raised on Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry records, encountering the Sex Pistols for the first time. Dismissing it as that this is just noise, it's not music. Astapenko seems to play the same two chords over and over again. Her ball striking exhortation sounds are something like a house cat ejecting a hairball. Just horrible to, to listen to, objectively. She wears outfits designed to elicit shock and awe from the norm-core masses. And she also happens to be a natural Luddite, trashing the machinery of the automatic line-calling systems in her post-match interview. She wants to get under your skin and basically just gives no fucks. Later, Matt arrived from Sydney to be present with me for an afternoon of live tennis. The baby, still around, still mostly well-behaved, stared the two of us down like we were aliens. Maybe it knew something we did not. When the baby grows up, we're just going to be irrelevant old men, yearning for the days of grace and beauty on the tennis court, while the future Ostapenkos of the world wreak havoc, breaking tennis down and rebuilding it in their image. Ostapenko won the match 7-5-6-3.
1: Sex Pistols are a good band, and I so I just I can't. I see what you're saying, but I can't um, really agree that Ostapenka represents punk rock. But I do think that uh, she must not really care about fashion or aesthetics because her outfit choices are not the greatest. But I suppose there are a lot of bad outfits in the tennis world. She was wearing that houndstooth dress that um, was like at the black and white, like David Jones department store kind of vibe with the bow and then there's the pink, pink, pink version. Right.
0: But it was, it was like patchwork as well. Like it was like cut into different segments and there were different stylistic elements in a pastiche cobbled together in this frilly, uh, overwrought, kind of distractingly garish, Tennis outfit that she was wearing,
1: right? And her new outfit for the Australian Open is—it's got that big collar and no sleeves, uh, and a very high sort of belt section that's like around this solar plexus region. It's not, yeah. I don't, I don't love it. And I don't love Ostapenko uh, as a player for the reasons you've kind of already mapped out. It's also, it also seems to be a bad sport.
0: Yeah, that's that's important to to mention as well. In fact, one thing that was immediately observable to me at the match was that when she was receiving Coco Gauff's serve, she would start um, she would start squeaking her shoes. Right. Like it's one thing for a player to you know be standing to receive and to kind of like to start. You know, bouncing Moving. around a little bit, yeah. move a little bit, get get ready, you know, like it's a way of, you know, yeah. priming yourself. You do a little split step, you can go either way when you're returning. Yeah. But she was clearly obstruct like trying to obstruct and distract Coco Goff.
1: She was making extra noise with her feet to disrupt the serve. Extra noise that didn't need to be made.
0: Right. It was quite obvious Coco Goff complained about it. The umpire basically brushed her off, saying look, she's allowed to move before she returns a serve and Koko Goff just had to get on with it. But it felt felt in that match that Koko Goff was getting distracted and so Ostapenko's tactics won. And if you're of the opinion that winning is everything or the only thing, the thing that matters most, then the the ends justify the means. But, you know, this gets back into just the notion that there's like a a correct way to play and behave and and Ostapenko is not not it
1: it's priorities isn't it as well because like maybe your coach says when you're a junior you've got to win at all costs that means never give an opponent a free point never own up to like something if the umpire gives you a point that you shouldn't have got just get away with it. you you need all the help you can get yeah rather than someone else who might go look i like playing tennis i want to win but the most important thing to me is integrity and sportspersonship and um, friendships um, you know you take it further maybe you have more interests in looking good on court maybe you want to mm. wear clothes that you like and maybe you care about the fashion side of things mm. um, and so you take an interest in that kind of stuff, stuff that's superfluous to potentially to winning the match but that maybe gives you an extra element of happiness in life
0: Yeah, there have been times where I've noticed players like tugging at their clothing, you know, like they'll get a kit and sometimes it doesn't necessarily fit them well or suit them suit their play, you know, like, and they haven't worked it out before they went on court. And so they end up struggling against their clothing during during a match. And it's like, well, what's more important? Is the performance more important? like your actual play performance or is it just that you look a certain way that you maintain your commitment to your sponsors? Because as much as we focus on um, the the fashion side, it it rarely is like an intentional choice from a player. It's often just, you know, who did they sign with? Who's providing them with free gear?
1: And what uh, does the company they signed with want to promote this season? Yeah. So they've got to play ball.
0: Yeah. Okay, so there, there was this, uh, you know, news story uh, that kind of came to the forefront this fortnight because apparently the Australian Open has decided not to pay the ball kids who work for them, you know, so that they have, they're basically benefiting from unpaid labor uh, being performed by children. <laughs> <laughs> it's... You know, it's sort of hilarious when this sort of thing comes out. Uh, other events do pay the ball kids. I mean, it may not be much more than a stipend, you know. Nobody's trying to pay them a living wage. They are kids. There are other benefits to them participating in these events and yeah. the access and the life experience and the, you know, the training that they go through and just being, you know, I'm almost certainly the kids are all, like, in tennis programs and around the game. So uh, there are benefits that are not... You know, fiduciary, right? Um, but uh, this came this this whole notion that you know the Australian Open is uh, exploiting children uh, really came to the forefront when Andy Murray played his five hour and forty five minute late night epic match against Tanasi Kokonakis, which um, yeah wrapped up at four thirty in the morning. And it's not like they just break out the ball men after midnight. The kids are just out there. Yeah, running shifts until all hours, um, four a.m. Yeah, past four a.m. It's pretty wild.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I don't think the Australian Open's paid ball kids since two thousand and eight, or maybe even two thousand and three. They it's, used to. They did. They did used to. So yeah, this volunteer um, labor that they're exploiting children for, I think it doesn't. It doesn't benefit anyone. It doesn't benefit anyone, any normal person. You know, like uh, paying children a decent wage um, lifts up the wages of every everyone and it sets a good standard for these kids for the rest of their life. They expect, you know, if they do a job, they ex- you should be expect to be paid. You can't be taken advantage of. The one who's benefiting is the Australian Open. And um, it makes me think of the way the state benefits from unpaid domestic labor, largely mm. done by women, and but done in the household, child care, domestic labor. This is all stuff that benefits the state because the workers reproduce um, themselves, and the state doesn't have to pay for the upkeep of you know our houses and um, the rearing of the children. But they benefit from the fact that there's a labor force that comes in, and every year, you know, more children are born. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not fair that we have to do this unpaid labor, and it's not fair that kids have to do labor for free, even if it's even if they enjoy it. Like, there's no nothing saying that you can't enjoy your work. Yeah,
0: well, right, the work isn't always glamorous either. I mean, there have been a few incidents this week with uh, with birds deciding to defecate uh, on or around the baseline. line. And um, I don't remember this happening before, even though I do remember birds being quite present. Perhaps this is, there's another kind of curse uh, at play here, you know, kind of lighter curse. Somebody is...
1: I- I thought a great curse could be may a gull soil your baseline, you know. Something you could say to your <laughs> yeah. opponent, you know, and then
0: Yeah, and actually it's not nearly nasty enough for me to not want to say that in the direction <laughs> of a player, you know, like I mean maybe not to their face, but you know, if I'm Under watching your breath. if I'm watching a Holger Rune match, I might yeah. say like may a so may a gull soil your baseline Holger Mm. Yeah, and you know, it's really, I mean, it's something that people can deal with, and it was interesting seeing the players deal with this situation and the unpaid labor, right? Like, players, I think, generally have the expectation that the people around them are going to deal with all the unpleasant stuff so they can really focus on the thing that really matters, which is hitting a ball with a stick, but um, right so two instances that come to mind um, in one case Andy Murray was dealing with some bird shit yeah and he just he was just like just give me the freaking towel and I'll do it myself because like there's all this confusion you know there's this hierarchy of people trying you know the chair is the person that you make the request to and then he has to find the right ball kid to mop up the mess mm-hmm. and Andy's just like I, you know what I, I can do a little work yeah and he just dealt with it himself yeah um, Victoria Azarenka, uh, experienced a little bird shit on her baseline during her match with, uh, with Zhu, Zhu Lin, mm. um, from China who had an incredible tournament. It was a really fun match that, uh, very few people got to see cause it was late. Um, but yeah, some, some shit happened and the, a ball boy was directed to clean up the mess and he like approaches with a towel and proceeds to push the towel against the poop and then rotate the towel and then push it again and then run away with the towel. Yeah, he
1: he patted gently. (laughs) And you could even see on the television that there was still marks left on the court. Azarenka's (laughs) like, give me that towel. You've never done a day of cleaning in your life, clearly. (laughs) And proceeded to scrub properly the bird poo. Um,
0: And it was quite obvious that she did a very capable job cleaning up that mess.
1: Yeah. Maybe the ball kid was like, "Hey, they don't pay me enough to clean bird poop. In fact, they don't pay me at all." You know, like right.
0: And then there's this thing that the ball kids uh, like invariably have to do, which often does result in these like kind of interesting, touching moments with players, where like a like a player will find a bug, like a you know, on the court, and they'll pick it up with their hands, and then a ball kid will receive the bug and then mm. take it to safety. Yes, um, but. <laughs> During the Yannick Sinner-Stefano uh, Tsitsipas match, Yannick Center just found, like, a big dead bug. And he's like, okay, well, i got to get rid of this. And he handed it to a ball kid who Took shepherded it away. it away. I wonder what the training is like for...
1: We were speculating this on this, David, and I think you came up with the... Um, you imagined what the training for a ball kid might be. And you said they have to plunge their arm into a bucket of insects, live insects, and leave it there for 30 seconds without reacting. <laughs> in it. So that when the moment happens, you have to pick up a live bug on national television. Right. Um, you won't freeze in the headlights. That's right. And you'll be able to deal with the pressure and deal with the sliminess or the of the bug or the, um, you know. You also don't want to be, like, handling the bug badly and killing it on national television do you? right or like
0: just acting in fear and like I don't want or like this is icky I don't want to touch it yeah um, the you know you figure that, that there is a tra- there must be a training for all of these circumstances that arise because they all seem to be pretty capable of dealing with most of these circumstances you know as much in the same way that a tennis player will get up before dawn to hit 500 return shots you know off of a ball machine I mean the, the bucket of insects, I think, uh, is probably part of the training regimen for ball kids.
1: I like it, but I, but they need to be paid for that shit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, full agreement there. So, aesthetics, the sound of effort, the exhortations made by players, I think it's, it's an important part of the game. And 20-something years ago, there was a lot of chatter about you know the sounds being made particularly by some women how intense and sharp they were. Brian Phillips once described Victoria Azarenka's ball striking sound as that of a ghost going down a water slide and it's interesting because Azarenka is having a great tournament right now she's in the quarterfinals and her sound has actually changed over the years which was very immediately noticeable some number of years ago, she, she mm-hmm. kind of dropped the water slide part, like the the, the Doppler effect, the trailing off okay. of the Vika scream, like, got got shortened and kind of, you know, was made a little bit more traditional in a way.
1: A more like just a ghost going down a very, like a slippery dip or like a... Short,
0: what is that? You're yeah, like a ghost, like vaulting, you know, uh, some kind of high bar or something. Or perhaps a ghost, you know, attempting to frighten another ghost. Which is, you know, a little bit artificial in a way because what does another, another ghost have to be afraid of? Themselves. Mm-hmm. So a ghost in a mirror. Perhaps it's a ghost witnessing their own uh, incorporeal form in a mirror, that is uh, Victoria Azarenka's current screen.
1: That's a very good description of her scream. You know, it's totally unfair that women get targeted with the, like, they scream too much, because listen to Rafael Nadal's yeah. scream. Yeah, the, we were walking
0: in Melbourne and you, uh, you started replicating a male effort and... I immediately knew that it was Rafa that you were performing for me.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) 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 That's Rafa. We know it. Everybody who watches tennis, you know, in the volume that we watch tennis, uh, would know that that's a Rafa effort.
1: Yeah. Does that remind you of anything in particular? It reminds me of um, sex, Mm. of like pleasurable moments during, and like, effort sounds during, perhaps thrusting during sex or receiving pleasure during sex, Um, yeah, and even like when Rafa hits a winner, he, he adds a bit more, because he's like, the effort sound, and then there's the relief, so... <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that could
1: be the climax of a sex act.
0: The sexual activity here is like, it's, it's just a, happening at a very slow but intense pace.
1: Yeah, and if you imagine two grunters playing with each other... And I did some research, and apparently, uh, Andy Murray said in 2013 that Carlos Berlocq has the worst male tennis screen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they were playing each other, you know, and then Berlocq sounds like a bear being stabbed with a fork. Mm. <laughs> like, it wouldn't really make sense if, if they were just behind closed doors in the next hotel room. You'd be wondering, well, who's having sex with who? Are they. It would be like they were masturbating themselves at alternating moments because the sounds of pleasure are happening spaced apart from each other. If you know what I mean. Normally yeah. when two pe- when people are, right, are the, more the more
0: sounds f- are more concordant and you concordant, know, I, I yeah. also do wonder if the the sexual activity would you know, would be brought more to mind if there was more uh more appropriate Ambient sound accompanying the exhortation, so you know the shaking of a bed frame, the creak of the mattress, the you know the wall, the the window rattling with the effort, you know, like the the pacing, the pacing in the space here, um, yeah. you know, making it feel uh, well, I guess more appropriate for, uh, for
1: and all, a the pe- sporting match. The, all the people watching in a in a big stadium. You don't often get that uh, when you're having sex. None, not. not typically.
0: thinking about the effort sounds and you know you don't really get that same thing in other sports at the at the moment of activity right like in tennis there's this rhythmic action the ball being struck and that's when the sound comes but like in basketball if somebody has a, a vicious dunk the sound is afterwards and it's much more celebratory and I don't think it's very sexualized really it's more like a you know like a war cry or
1: something right um yeah, that's something tennis certainly has, it, has going for it. The ability for those to sound, to sound like, or for us to imagine,
0: um, sex. It's interesting, you were mentioning that, you know, one thing that isn't typically true when, when people are having sex is that they're being observed by, you know, a stadium full of thousands of people. Yeah. But the the silence of the... Uh, of the crowd does contribute to that feeling, right? Typically, people have tend to have sex in private rooms. Right. And there's something about a tennis match that, you know, sometimes can feel like it can feel private in that way because of the, the relative quiet.
1: Yes, but it does build. Like, if the rally or, you know, to use... The, the, our example the this, this sex act continues and starts building to a climax also mm. the spectators start to get more involved. Uh, <gasps> yeah. oh, oh, ah. you know we, we start to like um, vocalise a bit our surprise right. and like oh, what's going to happen next yeah. oh they hit a drop shot oh is he going to get it ah. <laughs> and then our uh, clapping at the end <laughs> when they're finished yeah it's
0: pretty much just like sex um.
1: sorry about that <laughs> sorry everyone um, this is totally yeah, uh, very
0: uncomfortable very naughty of a Yeah.
1: the Tennis Tragic thanks you for listening all correspondence and feedback can be directed to tennistragicpod at gmail.com and our Instagram is at tennis Tragic Pod.
0: Nayagal soil your baseline.